We just spoke about the fact that there is one true God who decrees that which comes to pass and who indeed in the beginning created man. Tonight's sermon is going to touch on all of these points and so kind of keep your ear and eye open for those things as I'm preaching. Um, Jesus often did miracles throughout his ministry and we're going to take a look at one of those miracles tonight. Uh, We need to understand that miracles are not just raw exhibitions of Jesus' power. He's not just not just wanting to show off all the mighty things that he can do. Uh, he, he actually is doing this, but he's also doing something far more than that. Each of his miracles are, are something that points to a greater, more important, more foundational truth. So that uh, it's kind of like when you, when you train a dog. You know, if you have a brand new dog and, and you want him to look in a certain direction, you point like this, and what's the dog going to do? He's going to stare at your finger. And you're like, no, no, no. But as you train the dog and, and he learns, you do this and the dog will look over there. Let us tonight, as we read of this miracle of the healing of a blind man, not just stare at the finger of God which is at work, but let us look to where it is pointing. Remember last week that we talked about how Jesus used the statement, I am. And in this statement, he was making a proclamation that he was the eternal creator God. He was claiming equality with that God. And we're going to this week and in the next couple weeks kind of flesh out that statement a little bit, that I am statement, and see a couple of the different ways that Jesus is indeed the great I am. So tonight we see specifically two things. One is a proclamation by Jesus that I am the light of the world. And then secondly, we're going to see a miracle whereby he authenticates this claim. Bear this in mind and follow along as I read from the ninth chapter of John, beginning in verse 1. This is the inspired word of God. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now skipping down to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that your word is truth. We thank you that you are the light of the world. May we see your truth by your light. 
It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, light is kind of a funny thing. It, it can have different effects. Certainly, the idea of light, the, the purpose of it, the reason we use light is so that we can see things better. I had an interesting experience the other day, though, when, when it had just snowed. I was in this building, and it was the lights were off in the hallway because we usually don't have those on during the week. And so it was kind of dark, and I walked outside, and there was snow everywhere. And it was bright, gleaming white. It was so bright with the light shining off the snow that I could barely see anything. It was interesting. The light almost blinded me. It's the same with the sun. I mean, the sun is what creates the light that we use to see things. But if you were to stare into the sun, ultimately it would keep you from being able to see anything, blinding you. Light can have both purposes. It can help you to see, but can also cause you not to see. In this passage, we're going to see two different reactions that happen when the true light comes into the world. The passage starts with a man who's blind from birth. Now, we don't know why or how the disciples know that he was blind from birth. Perhaps uh, he had been as a beggar sitting outside the temple for, or outside the synagogue for many, many uh, weeks and months and even years before that. And so they'd gotten to know him from coming by. Uh, we, we don't know for sure. And, and frankly, that's not terribly important how they knew that. What is important is that he was indeed blind from birth. This is the only condition he had ever known. It was his natural state. We see in this certainly a picture, don't we, of our spiritual condition. We see that we are naturally blind. Though we can see physically, we spiritually are blind and we are unable to see the things of God. So we see here this picture and it's sort of an object lesson, but it's important for us to realize that even though it is an object lesson for us, that this is a real man who was really really physically blind. This is a serious problem, of course. And so There's an interesting question posed by the disciples. They say to Jesus, why is he blind? Was it because of his sin or his parents? You see, they were asking a question that was in lines with the assumptions of the day, whereby people just assumed that if things are going well for you, it's because you've done well and God is blessing you for that. If things go poorly for you, it must be because you have sin in your life. It's kind of like the questioners that, that come to Job, Job his, his comforters, if you will. Uh, they, they seem to think that he had sin in his life that had caused all his troubles. And so, too, we see the disciples thinking along these lines when they ask Jesus. Uh, we, of course, uh, think that we're, we're more sophisticated than that. We understand a little bit better how things work. But I think we should be cautious, first of all. I, I think there is some validity Uh, to what they're saying before we dismiss the question out of hand. Indeed, uh, sin does often lead to suffering. There are the natural consequences of sin in our life, which often do cause great deals of suffering. Uh, Many times, that's why, why it's sin, in fact, is God isn't just looking to withhold some good thing from us, but rather is trying to protect us from those things which are not good for us in the first place. And so that is why that boundary has been set up by God so that he might be glorified and so that we might be protected so that we might live to his glory so that's part of the reason that sin does indeed on occasion 
lead to suffering. Also, we need to know that ultimately all sin is because of, or all suffering is because of sin. Because it is when Adam sinned in the garden that creation fell, and all suffering is a result of the fall. And so it can truly be said that all sin is, leads to, all suffering does come from all sin. Or from, all suffering comes from sin, I'm sorry. But we need to see from what Jesus says here that there's not necessarily a one-to-one correspondence. Each, each bit of suffering that you have is not necessarily the result of a specific sin. The disciples thought that it was here. They said, was it this man's parents' sin or, or was it his? You know, there was actually the thought was that you could sin uh, while still in the womb. You could do something that would cause something. So that was the, the thought, the lines that they were thinking along when they asked this question. But Jesus says no. That's wrong. That's not what the case is. It's not because of his sin or because of his parents' sin. Ultimately, the reason that he is blind is for God's glory. That is why. We read earlier, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That tells us, you know what one way is that you can determine what the will of God is? See what happens. And on one level, for sure, that is the will of God. Now we have different understandings of what God's will is. There's the decreed will of God. That is what happens. There is, there is also the declared will of God, which would be maybe the moral will of God. And so that would be different. So God's will kind of follows along two tracks. Uh, so so it, it can be dangerous when we start to try to mix those two things, and we don't want to get too far into that tonight. We don't have time to go too deep into that, but we have to be careful with that. But we know that ultimately this man was blind. Jesus says it outright because of the will of God, because God wanted it that way so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now when we see this phrase, the works of God, the, the Greek word there for works is erga it's where we get our word energy so it's almost as if we're kind of saying so that the power of God might be seen in him Um, but to just take it at that and leave it at that would would be wrong there's there's one other place in the Bible where this phrase the works of God is used with the same Greek construction and all Uh, and that that's just about two chapters earlier two and a half chapters earlier in John 6 28 and at that point says that they said to him, this is, uh, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them. So this is on pretty good authority, right? It's Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus is the one whom God sent. And he says that the work of God is that you believe in Jesus. That's because you cannot believe in Jesus. You cannot put your faith in him. You cannot trust in him apart from the spirit of God working in your heart. It is impossible. You are not able to do that because you are a fallen creature, fallen in all of your capacities. And so it is necessary for the work of God to be manifest in your life if you are going to place your faith in Christ. In light of this, we understand that this man was not blind because of his sin, and he was not blind because of his parents' sin, but he was blind so that he might believe. 
so that the power of God might be shown mighty within him. Functionally, how does this happen? Well, Jesus, John gives us a picture here in what Jesus says and does in verses 4 through 7. It's a matter of light shining in darkness. This part of this passage is kind of reminiscent of the prologue to John's gospel where, where John says, In him, that is Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Literally, it says, the darkness has, has not seized it or laid hold of it. Many translations say the light has not, comp- or the darkness has not comprehended it. Either way, whether we take it to be overcome or comprehend or seize or laid hold of, however we, however we understand that phrase to be, what's important here is we see that darkness is the enemy of light. They are opposites to one another. And Jesus uses this metaphor in the form of day and night. He says in verse 4 that we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for night is coming. And Christ refers directly here to the fact that the cross is looming large in his not-too-distant future. And so that the work that he is in need of doing, he must do now, and he invites his disciples in to do that work with him. But there is an application for us as well. Though he's not speaking directly to us, there is an application. We too have a limited amount of time to do what God calls us to do for our lives are short and our days are numbered. John Calvin notes on this verse that since such a short period of life is allotted to us, we ought to be ashamed of languishing in idleness. In short, as soon as God enlightens us by calling us, we ought to make no delay that the opportunity may not be lost. We need to be about the works of God. The works of him who sent Christ. We've talked about Believing or having faith is what involves there. But we need to understand that this is not just an intellectual assent. This is just not saying, okay, I check that off, I believe it, and I'm done. But rather, it is a faith that is active. As James talks, uh, he, he speaks in his epistle, uh, you believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. He says, show me not just faith, but faith with works, faith put into action. And I think that's what John's talking about here in his gospel. He talks here saying that we need to work the works of God. Work the works of God while we have light. What is that light that illumines us, enabling us to do that work? Christ Jesus says in verse 5, I am the light of the world. Now if you're a Greek scholar, you might notice looking at the Greek that, uh, and I'm not a Greek scholar, by the way, but I got good commentaries. And they, you'll notice that the setup of this, the, the construction of it, is not the same as the other I am statements, whereby we see Jesus, uh, Jesus proclaiming that I am uh, all these different things that we will talk about in these weeks to come. But... It's interesting, we draw in this chapter, chapter 9, off of a statement that he made one chapter before where he proclaimed, I am the light of the world. And in that chapter 8, he does proclaim it with the Greek phrase, ego eimi, the I, I am. I am that I am, as God proclaims.
the same construction, the construction that points in the direction that he is proclaiming to be God Almighty. And in that chapter 8, when we see him saying that, we, we follow after verse 12 where he says that we see that the idea of being the light of the world is all bound up with the idea of truth. In chapter 8, verse 14, he says, my testimony is true. In chapter 8, verse 16, he says, my judgment is true. In verses 17 and 18, he says, I bear witness to myself and so does the Father and thereby by the testimony of two witnesses, you know that what I say is true. And what he's getting at here, I think, is the fact that belief in Christ Jesus is not a matter of opinion, but a matter of truth. It's not a case where you can say, that's fine, you believe in Jesus and I'm glad that works for you. But for me, I've got something else that works for me. It's not like a, a diet that you go on. We say, well, that's a good diet for you, but it's not really going to work for me. Or an exercise plan or, or what, what have you. It's not a matter of personal preference. Jesus is God. That is a matter of truth. He makes truth claims, and we need to either accept or reject them. Those are our only two choices. We can't waffle on the fence. And I say, along with him, that what he is saying is true. Back to chapter 9, verse 6. Having said these things, Jesus spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Now, why would Jesus do this? I, we, we think about other times that he's healed people who are blind. He didn't use mud. I think... There are, uh, there, there are any number of explanations. I'll tell you, if you read the commentaries, there's all kinds of different explanations, and we don't have time to go into what all of them are, but I will tell you what I think the answer is. I think the answer is that Jesus is essentially reenacting the creation of man. He is identifying himself with the creator God here. We read in Genesis 2 where the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And we see Jesus now taking the dirt of the ground and spitting into it. And then applying it to the man as if recreating his eyes. You see, because Jesus tells us truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom. He also tells us that if anyone, we, or Paul tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. In my opinion, Jesus is identifying himself here with the creator. If there's any dispute to that, there's no dispute on what's happening next. It says in verse 7 that he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Why would he say, which means sent? Why, why would John add that note here? It must be because Jesus is the one who is sent by God. We've already touched on it here tonight. And it is a theme that runs throughout the book of John. It runs throughout the Bible. Jesus is the anointed one of God, sent by God. And so John is showing us here that healing from blindness comes only through the one who is sent. And so the blind man went and washed 
in the pool called Scent, and he came back seeing. Don't lose track of how amazing this is. I think sometimes we see miracles in the Bible, and it's, ah, oh yeah, Jesus fed 5,000. Oh, isn't that interesting? We become so immune to them almost. Realize what, a first, what, what, what the people there in the first century would have thought when they saw this. This is an amazing act of supernatural power. They realized it was supernatural power. That's why two chapters later when Lazarus dies, the people say, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They understood his healing of a blind man to mean that he would have power even over death. They realized there was a supernatural power at work here. And beyond that, it was not just supernatural, but it was messianic. That's why we see Jesus, when John the Baptist sent messengers to him, and, and he was inquiring to see if Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. It's because when you look in Isaiah at the prophecies of the Messiah to come, There are things like you find in Isaiah 35 where it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The fact that Jesus was healing the blind was a sign that he was the Messiah. And a first century Jew would have understood it to be such. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one sent of God. Well, this man, having been washed in this pool called scent, returns. And, and we don't have time to go through the whole passage. I'm going to give you real quick from uh, verse 8 to verse 34. We're just going to fly through what he does, basically, is he shows up. And the Pharisees kind of don't really believe it's him at first. They think, no, this is some other guy that looks just like the blind guy that used to be here but isn't here anymore. Uh, and, and he says, no, really, it's me, I, I promise. And, and so they... They get upset. They find out how it happened. And and then they're upset because Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. And so they try to get him to kind of implicate Jesus. And and the guy's really, you know, he's kind of thankful that Jesus healed him. And he's he's not really sure what to make of this all at first. And he says, uh, you know, the person who did this was the the man called Jesus. And then later on, he says that Jesus is a prophet. And uh, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being a sinner and, and say that he did not act in accordance with their rules, basically. And and then this man says, and this is great, in verse 25, he kind of cuts through everything. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And it's wonderful the way he cuts through everything, isn't it? He just says, here's the deal. I couldn't see before, and I can see now. And that's pretty important. We kind of can't look past that part. Well, the Pharisees still aren't happy. They persist. And you can tell the guy's getting kind of irritated. And I kind of like this guy. He's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, I think, because, because the Pharisees persist. And they, they, they kind of nag at him a little bit more. And they're trying to get him. And they keep asking these same questions over and over and over again. And he says in verse 27, he answers them, I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear again? Do you also want to become his disciples? You know, well, they're not too happy with him then. And they... they we find out verse 28, it says they reviled him. And then later on in thir- verse 34, they cast him out of the synagogue. Uh, I guess the Pharisees didn't have a very good sense of humor, uh, but they kick him out and he's left there. Remember still, one key point, he still hasn't seen Jesus. 
Remember, Jesus put the mud on his eyes and sent him away to go to the pool and wash. And he washed and was healed and had his sight then. But when he came back, Jesus is no longer there. So here we have a man who has been cast out. That's his situation. It's Though he can see now, his situation is, in a sense, very dark. He's been cast out of the synagogue. He doesn't have a job. He doesn't have any training or experience. He used to earn his living as a blind beggar, but now he can't do that anymore. He's on his own. In many ways, he is a very lost soul. But we find in verse 35 that when Jesus heard that they had Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and he found him. Jesus found him. In the same way he finds you and me. We are wanderingly, aimlessly, lost in our sin, walking in our sinful ways, and Jesus comes and finds us. We do not find him, but he finds us, just as he found this man. And when he found him, we read in verse 35, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? This phrase, the Son of Man, is Jesus' most common self-designation. It comes from the book of Daniel, and it is, again, a messianic title. And Jesus asks this question not only of this man, but he asks it of you, and he asks it of me. He asks, do you believe in the Son of Man? He's not just asking, do you believe he exists? He's saying, do you believe in him? Do you have faith in him? Do you trust in him? Not just for your salvation eternally, but for each and every day's provision. Do you trust in him? Not trusting in yourself, not trusting in your own abilities, not trusting in any other earthly means, but do you trust in him? The man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? We see that this man who has sight wants to believe, but what he lacks is knowledge. He needs to know the truth. That truth that Jesus says in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That is the truth that this man needs. And so he asks, And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. Just think of what those words would have meant to this man. Here's a man who this morning did not see anything. He had never seen anything. And now he asks who the son of man is. And there is a man standing in front of him. And he says, you have seen him. He has seen the Son of Man. I'm reminded of the story of Fanny Crosby, who was a hymn writer who was born blind. And she, she was asked once if she wished she had her sight. And she said, to the surprise of many, no, I'm actually kind of glad that I don't have my sight. And the person interviewing her asked her why. And she said, for when I die, the first face I will ever see is the face of my Savior. What a wonderful thought that is. Seeing Jesus face to face. And here's this man who had never seen anyone until that day. And now he is face to face with his Savior. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. This, of course, is the only response he could have, isn't it? To worship him. 
when you come face to face with the God of creation, with the Redeemer of your soul, you must worship him. You have no choice in the matter, do you? And I'm not just talking Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. I'm not just talking about singing songs and, and reading the Bible and listening to it preached and saying prayers. Indeed, those are good things and wonderful things. And we should do those. But I'm thinking about worshiping him all day, every day, with everything we do. Let all of our life be an act of worship. Peter in his second epistle says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. He wants all these things, one on top of another like a staircase, one after another to be there. And he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But catch this. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Just as this man who was blind, but now saw, had been cleansed, and now had sight. So let these things be abundant in our life. Not to gain the blessing of God, not to impress him so that he blesses us, but because he has blessed us so mightily already. Because he has been so gracious to us. Because we were once lost, but now are found. Because we were once blind, but now we see. John says in chapter 1 of his gospel, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And then later on in his first epistle, he says the darkness now is passing away and the true light is already shining. And as that light is shining, you stand face to face with the one who has given you sight. How do you respond? May the answer for all of us be that we, like this man who once was blind, respond in worship. Let us pray. Lord God, we do thank you that you have indeed given us new sight that we might see you in your glorious grace. And we pray that you would turn our lives in such a way that they would glorify you beyond our wildest dreams. Make us more like you. We pray it in 